welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 16, where we discuss Valerio Scarani's talk at the Society of Catholic Scientists Conference. Right now, I'd like to ask you about uh, one of the other uh, early speakers at, this, at the conference of the uh, Society of Catholic Scientists, uh, Valerio Scarani. And uh, there was a, a talk of randomness and unpredictability, as I recall uh, uh, from your notes about, uh, about that talk. Uh, maybe you can first uh, introduce us for a moment to uh, Valerio Scarani. So he is uh, he's stationed out in Singapore, although uh, the <laughs> his name and his physical comportment and mannerisms certainly lead me to believe that he's actually Italian. Um, but academia uh, is like that. We often find ourselves in, uh, in interesting places the, the further on through life we get. So he is... Yeah. He's, his title is the Principal Investigator for the Center of Quantum Technologies. So he is clearly not just a physicist, but he's an applied physicist. So this must be, I suspect that this was for him a chance to sort of get out and do something completely different for a little while, which a lot of us enjoy from time to time um, when, we're, uh -huh. when we're locked in sort of a specialty, right? Right. Um, so he... He actually has a paper up on uh, the preprint server. So there's something called Archive, A-R-X-I-V.org, uh, where a lot of physicists and planetary scientists, um, certain, certain other people, not geologists really, um, but I, I have enough contact with those disciplines to have known about it you know, many years ago, uh, where you can put papers prior to publication. So there is, of course, the, the problem in academia of, Private publishers, of course, want to get paid, and they get paid via they pr they principally get paid via university libraries subscribing to their products. Yes. Which, you know, in 1993, the system was such that okay, so my library subscribes to you know the uh, you know, Geophysical Review letters and uh, and Icarus and you know however many other geology journals, and they come and they come as these you know boxy paperback things of whatever thickness and at the end yeah. of the year you send them over to the bindery and they get bound into a hardback thing and they get put on a shelf and that's how the world works and the world is sane and simple and everybody knows you know you go over and you you put your article on the copy machine and you take it back down to your office and you have filing cabinets stuffed full of you know photocopies of papers that are relevant to what you're doing this is how the world works it was right. basically how worked when I first went away to college in 1997. And that was how that <laughs> universities got to brag about how many journals their libraries subscribed to, how many volumes were yeah. in their library. Yeah, yeah. that was a yeah. big factor. Yeah. yeah. Go on. So, uh, now so, uh, but, uh, yeah, but the the internet, of course, changes this radically, and people started subscribing to journals, you know, on the internet okay, they're still paying a subscription. So you still have to go through a library website in order to get the finished product. But there are more and more people beginning more and more irritated with this. You know, the whole purpose of the Internet is to share information freely. Why shouldn't, and especially when you consider research is paid for via public funding almost in its entirety, right? Especially the sort of pure science stuff that we're talking about here. It's funded by NASA. It's funded by the National Science Foundation. Why shouldn't John Q. Public be able to fire up his web browser and go get it? 
which is something that I have a lot of sympathy with. I, I hope there's a way to somehow get to the point where that's the system, is that John Q. Public can, in fact, go get it. And, you know, yeah. and hopefully as a teenager be able to start, you know, reading about stuff that interests him and, and whether or not he, you know, goes on to become a scientist himself, you know, by that method starts to become more familiar with what science actually says. It should be public. It would be better if it was public, um, yeah. if it was publicly available. So archive.org is one of the workarounds. Um, I believe it's archive.org. In any case, if you look up ARXIV, you will find it immediately. Um, so it's it's where people put you know versions that aren't quite ready to be published, haven't been put through the final round of edits or what have you, possibly haven't even been submitted to the journal yet. Um, but it's it, in that field, it's a regularly you know regularly understood thing that lots of papers are there. Anyway, so he has a paper there that's about of all things Thomas Aquinas and his ideas on actually that the universe demands a certain level of randomness. As Aquinas was not, in fact, a fan all the way back in the 13th century of a sort of hard determinism that everything should happen by rules, and that you know that sort of appreciation for things having a certain amount of randomness to it was kind of lost in the uh, sort of classical physics era of the 18th and 19th centuries. Right. Um, you know, the, you know, people people began to think that it was better that things were deterministic, since after all, we all know that things are deterministic. But anyway, so Scarani's the bulk of his talk was about something. So there, there's a question in quantum mechanics related to what we've been talking about. You know, how we observe particles. It's, it's been implicit in that whole discussion of the two slit experiment, for example. How am I actually mm -hmm. measuring this particle's position? Well, I have to bounce another particle off of it, or it has to interact with another particle somehow. Or, you know, to look at it from the wave perspective, it has to interact with another wave. And I don't know for certain how much, the, there, there's an intrinsic ambiguity there. I don't know exactly where the particle was or how fast it was moving. And I have, you know, in reality, I don't even have perfect control over my test particle, right? And an ambiguity in terms of what I see from my test particle hitting this other, you know, sort of primary test particle. Um, but there's ambiguity there in what that interaction was. I don't know. I, I can't mathematically solve for it exactly. So right. the question right. has always been from the very beginning of quantum mechanics. You know, so we, we quantum mechanics enters this world full of physicists who expect determinism, and so. Einstein being just the most famous of them. And so people have been searching for a way to put determinism under the hood, so to speak, of quantum mechanics ever since. And so the idea is, are there hidden variables? Are there things that, no, it's true, I can't measure them, but nevertheless, can I get away from this interpretation of things being a sort of probability wave, because that's icky, um, because I would rather that at least God, if I believe in God, or at least some sort of being that may not care about me, which would not precisely be God, uh, right. that in, in principle, in principle, it's somehow knowable exactly where this photon is going to land on this interference pattern. If I'm doing a clean two-slit experiment, I don't know, I can't know, but nevertheless, it's knowable. That's you know. Frankly, that's sort of securing for some, you know, that that's comforting for some people. 
And of course, right, it's right. also it's also certainly a hypothesis that deserves testing. So what's fascinating is that you can set up something called a Bell inequality, named after and Bell. Gosh, when did he write his first papers? I think it was in the '60s. But and he and he updated it, and people started doing experiments in the '80s to test Bell's theorem. So you can actually make an exterior prediction that you can measure about what certain situations would look like if there were rules down at the level that you can't measure. It's really tricky. <laughs> it's another one of these yeah, mathematical yeah. proofs that uh, you watch it happen, and it's sort of like the math or the uh, the magician pulling the rabbit out of its hat. You squint at the hat. <laughs> Where did you get that rabbit from? Uh, <laughs> And, and it certainly, so he gives, so Scarani gave what he called a high school level presentation of Bell's theorem, which was very frustrating because um, I'm at least as smart as I was in high school and I was not the dumbest high school student on the block. And uh, right. it went by too fast for me to copy down all the algebra and parse exactly what he was doing. It was algebra, um, uh -huh. but, uh, but, but it went by, it was, you know, his, his, uh, he made the card disappear just a little too fast for me to see exactly which sleeve he was stuffing it down. So okay. I'd like to check out that high school, I guess. That sounds like quite a high school. Uh, right? Exactly. Maybe in Singapore, <laughs> right? I think Singapore is like Lake Wobegon where all the children are above average, right? <laughs> right. Um, at any rate, whatever high school he sends his student, his, his children to, I'm sure. Anyway, right. uh, all that, all that uh, beside the point. So essentially, in the classical formulation, you set up this inequality, and the inequality is such that um, if you set it up the way that he did, you have to get a number. At the end of his experiment, you get a number that's less than two. So the number is, you know, the, the number that he should have used in uh, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is what? What was that? Thirty-seven or something? I forget what the. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not that. It's two. The number is two. And if the universe <laughs> is less than two, there are rules. And if, but unfortunately, or fortunately. When you do these experiments, and there's now been an enormously long series of such experiments that close more and more loopholes of things, well, you know, what if there was a faster-than-light, you know, interaction between this and that, which is sort of intrinsic in a lot of these hidden variables ideas that uh, we're trying to prove or disprove. Um, so if you, se you set up the experiment ever more carefully to close ever more of these loopholes, um, the, the results are always more than two which is okay. inconsistent with there being a hidden rule down there somewhere where I can't see it. Like, the, yeah. if, you trust Bell and if, if you trust Bell's derivation, which people do, and you do the experiment, which people have done many, 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 many times in many, many, many different ways, you get a number that's somewhere between, like, 2.4 and 2.7. That's, and that is, nope, no rules down there, no rules to be seen. And so that's really, nothing to be seen here. Move on. <laughs> right. Nothing. Nothing to see here. Nothing. Nothing under there. Don't worry yourself. Don't worry yourself about the fact that you can't see the rules. In fact, there are no rules. Take comfort. In it. So, so that so that was you know, to boil it down, that was Scarani's talk, um, and that you know, so that was you know, so that and that's a major you know to to be sort of an educated consumer of you know physics and philosophy of physics, you know, I realized I have to know about Bell's inequality. So I was grateful 
for him to lay it out, you know, even if it was a little too fast uh, for my high school self to uh, to parse. Um, nevertheless, you know, it, it got me like, okay, but there's something there's something more about you know just seeing someone lay it out in person than simply reading about it because I'd read about Bell's inequality and not necessarily ever gotten the full significance. Uh, you know, in, in say Physics Today, this magazine I used to get because of one of my uh, professional affiliations. Um, right. It's but it, but yeah, it's I mean it's major. It's a, it's a huge part of of our understanding of quantum physics. It's, it's and was he? Uh, what was the uh, was the goal of his thought largely to just uh, kind of raise awareness of this as a as a as a cautionary note for an implication about how. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he, he was coming at it with this um, from from the perspective of you know, in, in this case, you know, the the way it relates back to physicality and mind is that for for something non-material to affect the material, there has to be space for that. And so if you, could, if you could demonstrate that there were really these deterministic rules, even if they're at a level that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle promises you, you'll never figure out exactly what they are, or even if you figure out what they are, you'll never see how they play out for any actual particle or system. Right. Right. Um, nevertheless, that would at least, that seems to close off, you know, then if you want to believe that your soul affects your, you know, body somehow, you were forced to actually break a law of physics in order to get that done. You're forced to believe that actually we're going around with some, you know, entity tagging along with us, even though it's a soul and it's not material and therefore is not confined to space and time, probably. Um, right. And at least is somewhat like God, who's definitely not confined to space and time. He's present every point in space time, and he's the same God at every point in space time. Um, right. If for this for this non-material entity to affect you, you have to break. You know, again, if 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 you have hidden variables, you know, for that for that entity to actually change anything, and this gets back to more freedom of choice type of intentionality and will and and will. Um, you you need to be breaking laws of physics. Whereas, if you can. If you're forced to, which we seem to be, you know, forced to either a probabilistic interpretation of reality or a variety of things that seem much less appetizing, like the many worlds hypothesis, that all of the choices are actually happening, and they're just happening with some sort of intensity that's keyed to whatever the probability is, and we're somehow just surfing down one of these pathways, and they're, you know, again, they're splitting however many, 10 to the God knows how many times a second, you know, throughout the universe, but this many parallel universes. I, I, it, it, I, <laughs> it violates <laughs> the principle of parsimony, as, you know, Occam, you know, we, we might attribute to William of Occam, you know, with Occam's razor. Yeah, it would, right. that would break Occam's razor's uh, approach to science pretty severely for that to be your preferred answer to you know to how reality is i i'll stick with probability and of course if it's just a question of these different you know for for every individual event it's it makes only a limited amount of sense to talk about the probability for an individual event there's only what actually happened right and especially right. and especially since there's no one measuring exactly what's happening in my cerebral cortex or yours 
um, we don't have, you know, we, we can't assemble a probability distribution that seems to be any different than what we would, you know, we don't have any way of checking that that's, you know, different than it would be otherwise. So all those, all yeah, those issues yeah. do relate to this question of how, you know, how could I actually have an immaterial soul that, you know, when, when the physical world is closed? Well, that's the whole question. The Copenhagen interpretation or that style of interpreting quantum physics via probability seems to leave that pretty open. Uh, uh, so that question remains uh, open even after this talk, but at least it's uh, informed uh, the audience that uh, that question has to be uh, continuously addressed. Yeah, yeah. There, there are other, and Skorani at the end described a few other ways that you could try to uh, restore a sort of deterministic universe. Um, there's something he called sort of super determinism, which is basically that would, would sort of require someone or something, I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying a bit here, but it would require someone or something to sort of have their finger on the scale at all times so that you could not even make a free choice about, you know, how to set up the experiment. Um, you have the many-world hypothesis, or you would need some sort of not just faster-than-light communication, but actually an infinite speed communication between particles that is, you know, so well hidden that it's almost like the universe was designed to hide it. <laughs> so, wow. so, so there's, there's, you know, probability. There, there's the probabilistic interpretation of the universe. There's the many worlds, which I I think I'm I, I'm allowed to find distasteful. And then there are things that I think I'm allowed to find even more distasteful. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Well, a distasteful uh, maybe, but uh, uh, no. fascinating and uh, informative, uh, uh, definitely. You know, yeah. if we uh, if we have time, let's 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 go on to one more 